back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got the news, we've got the whatever, I don't know, we don't really talk about the weather. But anyway, on that note, Devin, what have you been up to, man? Uh, weddings. I've been at weddings, dealing with weddings, doing weddings, everything concerning weddings, because after all, it is June. Oh no. So it is the season of weddings, yes. Are, are you roped into wedding photography? Because that's a scary proposition. <laughs> Yeah, bridezillas and all. Uh, oh my god! So. <laughs> but uh, it's not it's not that terrible. Um, you know, a lot of the clients have been um, super. A lot of them honestly are surprised by uh, the amount of quality they can get out of video recording because most of the people I see doing video photography are just using two hundred three hundred dollar handy cams from Best Buy Eek. and uh, a little L bracket with a light on it and calling it a day. So. Um, a lot of times just by having, instead of thinking like a documentary filmmaker per se, and you, you know, think more of like trying to create a story and make images and stuff like that, it's, you, you tend to impress a lot of clients that way, um, which is good if you're in the wedding video photography business, because it honestly doesn't take much and talent <laughs> in that business of knowing how to light and stuff like that goes a real long way uh, because there are so many people out there who, are basically just holding a camera. They hold a video camera and they get paid, you know, a couple thousand a weekend to hold a video camera the entire time. And they really don't know a whole lot of what they're doing. The camera's just set to auto. And I feel like that's a waste of a client's money most of the time because they could get their cousin to hold a camera all wedding. <laughs> so. I've, I've only done a few wedding gigs and I try to avoid them at all costs, if at all possible. But occasionally you get roped in by a friend or a colleague to help out with something like that. And the few yeah. times I've had to edit video for a wedding, my secret was shallowed up the field, uh, get that classic bride with the the giant window next to her shot, you know, where it's kind of blown yeah. out and washy, but in a really good way. And you just get a bunch of shots like that of people smiling, people eating cake and so on. And then you cram them all together and you find a symphony type of uh, music ambiance to go with it. And you give them like seven minutes of just like basically little vignettes of each of the things that happen all the way to the end where they dance. And if you do that, people are like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> and, like, it doesn't really right. tell you anything. It's not really a true story. It's just kind of this right. weird, it's goofy, basic. like, here's a bunch of, like, uh, you know, cream dream shots and nothing else. And then I put some music over it. And, look, you guys are dancing at the end. It's so cute. And maybe if you can end with, like, a cute child or, like, maybe the child trips and, like, smiles up at the <laughs> camera or something like that or drops something, you know. Those right. are the shots that, like, you just mix in. And they're so easy to get because at weddings, like, that's all it is. It's all... People mm -hmm. just walking around, like, crying and smiling and so on. And if you really want to get tacky, you do, like, the kind of cross dissolve from the mother crying to the bride <laughs> kissing her husband, you know. And yeah. I, these are all the horrible <laughs> things that I think about when I'm, I'm, I've done the few wedding uh, projects that I've worked on. And it, it, they love it. They eat it up, man. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's one of those things, like I said, that um, – um, I don't even know how a lot of these people get hired because a lot of what they do is so basic, but um, I guess because they make their rates just a little bit cheaper than a lot of the guys who've been doing this for a while, um, they manage to get business. So uh, I guess that's one of the unfortunate truths of the videography business these days. Oh, yeah. Um, my, I had a, my wedding was in Greece, 
And uh, we tried to get a photographer for that area because I couldn't take care of my own stuff. And mm -hmm. the, the ironic thing is, is since I have a lot of friends that are high-end photographers, they were all there, but they wanted to enjoy the wedding. So I brought right. a little bit of kit and handed it over to um, one of my friends to, to shoot just a little bit. You know, I said, do it casually. Don't ruin your time or anything. And then we had a paid photographer, and we ended up throwing all his photos out. They were awful. And uh, <laughs> the only thing that really made it was the stuff that came from the friends in the crowd that were just passing around a 6D with like a 135 F2 on it. Uh, and the, yeah. the photographer that was there even came up and was like, wow, if only I had this equipment, my wedding photography would be to the next level. And it wasn't oh like we goodness. were, you know, I wasn't toting around mm -hmm. top-end gear. I was a couple of L lenses, uh, the 51.4 and, you know, some random yeah. stuff. And he's just like, man, someday <laughs> when I get it big, you know. <laughs> and that was like a $3,000 fee for, for a wedding photographer. Yeah, you don't want to be hearing that after you spend that kind of money. Oh, but, oh man. Your equipment's so good. Yeah, and then the worst <laughs> thing was he's like, yeah, I learned everything I know from watching your show. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> I, 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 I learned everything from your DIY show. <laughs> All right. On that note, time for the news. Time for the news. First up on the list here, and this is something Devin and I have actually talked about a few times as it was in pre-release, is the Kepin EF or Kippen. You know what? How do you how do you think you pronounce this, Devin? K I P O N. Yeah, I'd say Kippen. Kippen. Okay, that makes sense to me, and it sounds it sounds camera e. It, it Kippen is a camera e sounding thing. So <laughs> as weird as that sounds, I don't know. Usually camera things they're either Japanese or like they're usually German. So you know. Kippen to me sounds like it falls under one of those two categories. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with Kippen then. Kippen is basically an EF to Micro Four Thirds adapter, and this allows you to basically get full speed, and I'm quoting in the air right now for those listening, full speed autofocus out of Canon lenses on a uh, Micro Four Thirds body. So I've been testing this out with the GH4. Uh, this thing is indeed really fast, and let me show you this wackadoo rig that I've got going on right now <laughs> to do the video uh, perspective of this. This is a EOS M attached to an adjustable arm here, a friction arm, and then that's tied into the Verivon cage that's also connected to the GH4 body. And you can see right here, this basically gives me like a close-up view. I'm using the uh, 22 millimeter pancake for the EOS M, and it's about as light as a GoPro, actually. I, I always talk about how I love the EOS M, and this is the sort of thing that it's perfect for because it's such a light, robust camera. It's good to ISO 1600. It's basically a 7D sensor inside, and this is running Magic Lantern. But anyway, enough about that. Let's talk <laughs> about this thing right here. So I've got this on the 16 to 35 millimeter F1, F28, excuse me. And mm -hmm. it, listen to this focus. Can, I don't know if you can hear that or not. And this is just me yeah. like pointing it around the room. We're, we're, this for, thing is for those super who, fast. Who can't see, it's literally less than. It's definitely less than a second. You're, you're probably within half a second territory easily on that guy. Yeah. So right now, I've been testing this out with various Canon lenses, and I just went out today with the uh, Canon 135 millimeter f/2. 
And where this thing really succeeds is in anything within probably 60 feet of the camera. Uh, you start getting out further than that, and I've had it wig out on me a little bit, um, especially if you have it set to electronic shutter. So if you're not familiar with the GH4, you have a regular curtain shutter, and then you have electronic shutter. And the electronic shutter goes up to something crazy like... Uh, 132 thousandths of a second or maybe it's 64 thousandths of a second I can't remember but uh, it, it's so high that the, the adapter itself starts to wig out and kind of go dark light dark light and also mm-hmm. in uh, far distance shots um, it hunts a lot more so it's not the perfect solution uh, but from talking to Kippen apparently they're going to be coming out with a firmware update for that and there's a plug on there with a USB port so that you can actually uh, upgrade the chip on the device and add latest features or whatever. Right now though as far as adapters go it's probably one of the fastest AF systems for a non-Canon body with Canon lenses that I've used. Um, If you're familiar with the Metabones adapter for Sony cameras that's slow as molasses, and it's not <laughs> quite as fast as native glass. But, I mean, you heard that there, Devin. It's keeping yeah. up pretty well, and it's fairly accurate, I would say. Well, and I, Go ahead. I'd say it's, it's a testament to the fact that um, the GH4, I mean, I know that in, like, 4K mode and other stuff, it not uh, you know, it's a little different. But the GH4 in general is pretty much uh, right up there in the top for the fastest autofocus system that there is. And so... Of course, when you add an adapter, um, you know, there, there's an interface going on, and theoretically, you could probably match the exact same speed that a native thing would go, but there is translation going on. So I, it's, you know, I never would expect it to be perfect, but to see that it is this close to being perfect, um, I think that's just an attestment to the fact that the GH4 has a great autofocus system because it's working in tandem with the adapter, and it's obviously fast enough, and the adapter's fast enough that it all happens really fast, and it, it's almost like, uh, you know, having your uh, 6D or 7D around. Well, and it's really sexy because this isn't a focal reducer, so you're getting double whatever your lens is rated for. So in the case of the uh, Canon 135 F2, now I'm getting like a 270 F2. And, you know, I, oh, man, doing, uh, you know, uh, photography out in, like, public areas. I was at a race this morning shooting some stuff. And you can really get some great shots far enough away that it's kind of candid. Um, you know, no one can see you doing what you're doing. So you can sneak up on people. I mean, don't sneak up on people. That's bad. Don't do that. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, you can get, like, kind of the candid shots that you can do with street photography and you can do it kind of discreetly off to the side and no one really notices because that much reach and then f2 beautiful bokeh knock the background out um this adapter i really like it a lot um i hope it gets better i'm going to be testing this more and more uh and one other thing i wanted to point out uh for the ones that do have focal reduction this is the metabones adapter right here you don't get af with this at all. Mm-hmm. There is no AF for the Metabones adapter right now for uh, EF to uh, Micro Four Thirds. So this guy, it, while it does provide an excellent tool to you know change the amount of magnification you're getting out of the lens, it does not help with AF. And I would love to see a combination of this and the Kippen adapter so that we have that kind of autofocus speed, even if it's not always accurate, and a focal reducer. I don't know if that's possible simply because of the math involved with the focal reducer and the position of the lens. Uh, That may mess up something. I don't really know for sure what happens on the back end. Devin, you got any input on that? Because I'm kind of lost when it comes to the, like, focal tracking and the distance tracking on lenses. Um, Well, I think that a lot of mirrorless, I mean, I... (sighs) 
I don't know because I yeah, haven't I know built an autofocus like system. The, the contrast um, uh, yeah. differences in order to get focus, but I know the lens reads back some kind of a distance measurement to the camera mm-hmm. body itself, and that's how it works with the AF system to kind of get close. And then the AF system brings in the micro adjustments to get it to the, with the that, last using spot. that contrast system exactly. And so it's it's um, which is which is obviously yeah the the Canon glass. I'm sure some amount of that data, the little bit of you know chip that's in there that tells it, hey, this is what kind of glass I am. This is my exposure and everything else. Um, that being led into the GH4. So I imagine that's probably why uh, your distance is, you know, on your longer distances, it's having a little bit more struggle, uh, especially to considering like uh, the DSLR glass and Canon glass, you know, how quickly that zooms all yeah. the way far to infinite and back. Um, it's probably just not super tuned in with the motors. It's something, though, I imagine they could fix with a firmware update on it uh, after some more testing and stuff. Yeah, I, the the thing that struck me, and since it's using USM, which is like a pulse modulated driver, uh, that might be getting too advanced. Uh, <laughs> um, there are two types of ways to drive a motor uh, for lens focus. One's a stepper type motor, and that's the STM version. And the USM is a pulse modulated, so it's actually sending a waveform partially the time in order to get the lens to move to a position, and then sending micro bursts to get to the last bit. Well, with a longer lens like that on the GH4, now your throw is is double so the sensitivity and the adjustment at a longer focus length has to be very subtle compared to what it would be on a full frame body where you're not doubling the uh, the zoom or the focal distance so that may well, be who, the issue and how do you requirements are because yeah, exactly. do you even know if the motors the way that they're designed for gh4 and canon even operate at the same voltage well, the voltage so, issue is a different story because you, this is all TTL. So TTL is going to be uh, five-fold. There's standards for it. There's a five-fold driver and, and so oh, on. Okay. So that part isn't the issue, and they designed the motor specifically for that. That's why you can adapt. It's, it's more that pulse width modulation, that encoding to yeah, the motor. Yeah, exactly. So that's... imagine if your error rate is like 0.1% across the throw of the lens, for example. Well, now mm-hmm. the error rate is going to be 0.1% because you're doubling the size of your focal range on the lens so now you're trying to get it to be really accurate but you're trying to get it to be really accurate with something that's meant to be driven you know at half that sensitivity and get into range right because if you're off by like a millimeter on 135 millimeter focus range you're probably still going to be within that like margin error window to be fine but if you're off like by you know seven or ten millimeters on double that now you're looking at a window where like you could get the wrong thing in focus or the thing behind it could be in focus because the, the air increases and then, you know, it's, and it's at the same time too, I'm sure that they don't set it up there to sit there and hunt all day to try to find it, you know, to be perfect. So I I think eventually doesn't it kind of give up on hunting if it can't get it perfect. Yeah, it does actually. Um, it'll go one all the way out and one all the way back before it stops and then just gives you like, I don't know what to do here. You'll either get the red market (laughs) error or it'll just say, yeah, I'm in focus and it'll just, everything will be blurry. So as I test but this, I'll like, it cover... It is fast. What would yeah. you say is that range that after this range on your lens, you were noticing a lot of problems? Like, what do you? What would you say is usable uh, very, you know, to a point that you could rely on it, that in this range, I know I'm going to get what I'm looking for? Well, with the prime lenses I've tested so far, I've been messing around with the 35mm uh, f1.4 and the 50mm f1.2, 
and those seem to be in like the portrait range, you'll get good mm -hmm. solid focus. So, you know, probably 20 to 50 feet away from the camera, you start going out further than that, like horizon line or something, and it mm -hmm. just goes wacky. So that's where it is on primes. On the 135, it was... It was good, but I couldn't give you a gauge on how far away things were. I mean, I want to say 50 sure. feet, but, you know, I was shooting at a bazaar, and there were runners going all over the place. Is it a, It's right. not a bazaar, a fair, a street fair. Who, who says bazaar? <laughs> Where did that even come from? <laughs> oh, man. But anyway, the point is uh, I was shooting a lot of people, like, running around. Uh, they have these flower tents where people make giant bundles of flowers and stuff. And I was a ways away, and I was, you know, with the 135, double the focal length and now you can basically from 40 or 50 feet fill the entire frame with someone's face and it's beautiful mm -hmm. without a focus but i was getting a lot of error with that same distance that uh, with the 50 and the one third or in the 35 millimeter i wasn't so i still need to test some more and and really dig into this but at shorter focal lengths like uh 35 millimeter f1.4 i I wasn't having any problems with subject matter that was within 50 feet of the camera. So take that for what, what it's worth. Uh, I'll be filming the errors as I get them. That's why as I walk around, mm -hmm. I'll have this crazy contraption right here. <laughs> because they only happen maybe once an hour or once every couple hours. So they're kind of okay. completely random. And it also seems to be when you start to get up to like one sixteen thousandth of a second um you know uh, shutter speed the thing will wig out on you sometimes and i don't know if that's because you shouldn't have the electronic um shutter on when you're using this adapter with the gh4 and you should just stick with the curtain shutter um i'm not mm -hmm. sure yet i'll have to play around with that some more but it is interesting and they did drop the price, which sucks for me who pre-ordered. Uh, the price <laughs> oh, is now geez. down to two seventy-five. I think I paid three ninety-nine or three forty, something like that, for it. And I did actually. And I don't know if the those of you watching can actually see this. Uh, my number here is one hundred and twelve. So I believe. I have the 112th produced adapter on the market. <laughs> kind of interesting. I don't know if it really yeah, matters. Yeah, that's pretty much. cool. That's a cool little piece of history. So, but you'd say, um, especially with the price drop, it's definitely worth the value if you've got some Canon glass and a GH4. Heck yeah. Um, I still need to test this in video mode though. So, uh, right. this is just for photography right now. Uh, video mode may be completely different. I know a couple people have already emailed me asking about that. I don't tend to use. AF that in that manner in video mode, so that's up in the air yet. But yeah, and you shouldn't either. All of you, you <laughs> shame on be you. Using manual focus. <laughs> I know um, when people are talking about the 7D Mark II, and they're like, "Yeah, the the video autofocus is amazing, man. It can crack faces and all that." I'm like, "What are you doing? Yeah. Well, what are you shooting <laughs> where you need to use autofocus? You know, like what's going yeah. on here? Where are we?" And there's some great videos on YouTube too if you watch. Um, uh, AF system on the six or the T6i, uh, that one hunts like crazy. So people will sit in front of their video camera, you know, filming whatever they're doing, and it'll hunt mm -hmm. to the background, yeah. hunt to the foreground, and it's like turn that crap off, turn it off. Yeah, G. Um, it's, uh, I shoot with a GH3 regularly, and um, that autofocus face tracking thing. I mean, if you're up close and the lighting's right and everything else, it works really well, but it's nothing compared to uh, the GH4 system in terms of autofocus, even for photography. 
Now, while we're talking about focus, I'm going to skip ahead to a couple stories here and bring up this Sony story. Uh, Sony, in a press release and in several interviews, has mentioned that with a firmware update to the Metabones Mark IV adapter, it will focus extremely fast with uh, Canon lenses on a Sony body. They've got a quote here, much faster than before with adapters. As pictured, Canon lenses are almost as fast as Canon lenses on a Canon body. I don't know if I believe that. Devin, what do you think <laughs> about this? Uh, you know, um, it's I, I don't want to say like Metabones is lying. Um, I haven't seen anything to the case, and I'd be surprised unless they found something to really solve their issue uh, with the focusing. I know that um, you were saying that uh, you saw Sony actually showing Metabones on their uh, yeah, so cameras. One thing I noticed at NAB last year was actually when they were debuting the A7S, which I have right here in my hand, uh, they were debuting it with Canon glass because at the time, the A7 line, there wasn't really any full-frame E-mount lenses that were available. You know, there were a couple, but mostly nothing you would really long for. So every camera they had on display had a Metabones adapter on it, and they were demoing it with Canon glass. Now, Sony has started to pick up the pace in generating more and more uh, E-mount lenses, but the stuff that's out there right now, we're talking like a 55.18, uh, 24 F2, 35 uh, millimeter F2. They're okay, but they're not like anything you want to you, you strive to get you want to spend the money on there's a few um zeiss lenses that are out that are really mm-hmm. kind of innovative i don't know if you saw the 85 f18 with the uh, digital display on it it actually yeah. like tells you um what the focal measurement is and like information yeah. about what's going on on the lens it was cool it's i don't cool, know if i but, need it but it was cool yeah but it's like kind of <laughs> wacky like really what, what do i yeah i don't know so there is some stuff coming but still right now for full-frame cameras, uh, Nikon and Canon have a lead in the market. They've been making full-frame lenses for years. They have lenses all the way from wide to telephoto, and you have a giant selection. So if Sony can somehow make their camera bodies with some kind of adapter very acceptable to use Canon glass, that would be a major way to push people from Canon over to Sony. And, you know, right now, Canon is kind of a lumbering beast. They're behind in a lot of their their sensor technology. They're behind in a lot of their uh, innovation as far as 4K is concerned. And they're not keeping up with some of these other companies that are a little bit more nimble. Now, Sony... We've talked about it at length. We've talked about Canon at length, how... um, they're also they. It's almost like they have too many products. They're so concerned with not cannibalizing sales from different product lines and even different tiers within a product line um, that it feels like you know uh, when they came out the T two I it was super great, super innovative, and same thing when they came out the C three hundred. And then even then, all these updates have been very small, very incremental, and it seems like I don't know. The, either they've got something in the back room, or they're just super concerned with. Um, 5D, not taking sales away from a C100, and a C100, not taking sales away from a C300. So it seems like they're not totally, uh, you know, necessarily coming out with anything new or anything all that exciting. A lot of it's just been minor updates. Now, while we're talking about the adapter here, I'm going to highlight this. This is the quote, and they say much faster, but 
fast doesn't always mean accurate. And there's a note here from CanonRumors.com that says AF speed is not just or not just the speed that something focuses, but also the accuracy of the focusing. So you might want to keep that in mind. Uh, Sony did just say that it's faster. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurately fast. And, if, and you're right. It could be marketing trickery because, I mean, generally when we speak about autofocus speed, we talk about completion. We talk about I hit the trigger and it hits the point, and that's how long it takes to hit. And we just assume that we're going to get that high level of accuracy that we expect in Canon or Nikon or everything else. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you can't put it past them uh, with their, uh, um, you know, just I don't know where Metabones is as a company and stuff like that, you know, or uh, financially or what products they have coming out. But it, it's one of those where it could just be trickery being like, yeah. Because we can drive the motor at full speed before, and we couldn't do that before. But then if it still has to hunt for a second, then it really didn't make anything all that much faster. So it's definitely one of those that we got to see some videos because uh, they don't really see numbers, which is one of those like, oh, almost as fast as a cannon. Well, almost isn't, you know, empirical. So what are you going to do about that? Well, and it's even hard kind of as a reviewer to test that sort of thing. Even if you have two cameras side by side, you know, if you have a native glass for one camera, a native glass for the other camera, it's kind of hard even pressing both buttons to determine, yeah. like, oh, wait a minute, this one's perfect or this one's not, because you're not going to get exactly the same sh- subject matter. Maybe the light's going to be a little bit different and all the other factors that work into that. It's really hard. And the only well, way to really DJ, judge it. you... Knowing you, you could design a test where, like, the computer screen is counting numbers or something like that, and you hook both up through the remote control port, and you're using, like, a universal remote control shutter that you just split the wiring into both cameras so that when you hit the trigger, it'll trigger it on both seemingly simultaneously at the same time. So I was actually sure you thinking about something. A, a trigger mechanism like that with and, uh, and utilizing the 960 frames per second on the GH4 <laughs> to somehow like capture it and then count the number of frames and divide that down. I'm, I might yeah. be able to do that. Uh, you know, it, it's not impossible, <laughs> but it just really depends on how much time I have. But true. But it's, if, if you if that's where you had to take the testing to to test the differences, to me, that says then they're both fast enough. Yeah, that's true. No, that's it's, true. it's the feel thing. No, you, you can nerd out and get specific with your numbers and being like, well, on this lens, focusing from this spot to this spot, it's it goes 14. this fast. It's 14.375% but- faster. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. Guaranteed. But at the end of the day, as a photographer, you're not caring about numbers when you're on spot. You just want the feel that the camera is, bam, 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 and you're just firing off photos. So honestly, I don't care if it's almost canon. What I care is that... If when you take it out there, you can shoot it and not think, oh, I'm waiting for it to focus here and focus here, and you're not waiting on the camera, because that's the worst uh, when you're trying to do photography. Now, since this is kind of a turning into a strictly focused podcast, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I got a question for you, and this is my method, and I'll explain it, and then I'll throw it over to you to, to see what you do. Uh, with like the 6D, for example, the only cross-type focusing point is the center point. So when I'm using it for photography and I'm relying on the autofocus system, I actually focus first, then frame. And I've gotten so used to that over the years that I do the same thing with the GH4 now. The GH4 has, you know, a big focusing window, and you can set up focus points wherever you want. But what I do is I use the single point, draw it to the middle, and then I just <laughs> frame, or, you know, focus and frame, focus and frame. Yeah. How do you use your focus system on your camera? Uh, you know what? I did do that a lot when I was using a T2i, but... As crazy as it sounds, um, I usually do a matrix grid. Um, 
a lot of them, you know, are weighted for rule of thirds and things like yeah. that. So most of the time when I'm shooting in that way, I really don't find it missing most of the time because I don't usually have um, a foreground object that I'm trying to keep out of focus. Um, maybe that has more to do with the kind of photos I take and my style and everything else, but there's so few photos where I have a foreground. Almost the subject is always the closest to the camera um, in just about every case. So the basic matrix grid or anything like that, like 16 point, like that kind of stuff just usually finds it, and I rarely have an issue with any of that. Uh, I have been using a lot of the... Um, um, it, it kind of the same technique you're using though. I have used the exposure lock, uh, on the back. So I'll point to an area that I want to expose for, and then I'll move it over and take the picture. So, uh, I do the same kind of technique with exposure, but most of the time for me, there, there are a few times where I have a foreground object and then I'm usually like either manually focusing or because it's a GH3 touchscreen, I'm touching on exactly what I want to focus and then it behaves like it should. So, but what I, that's what I like about the GH3 is I can have it in matrix mode, and then it's kind of as soon as I can flip a switch, press a button, and now I'm focused where I need to be focused. So for me, I work on both ends of it. Uh, but I guess <laughs> you, you, when you get set in your ways, it's hard to like learn a different way. Yeah, and it's because I've, I've been using digital cameras all the way back to the uh, original 10D. And, and when I got that, you know, it had one good focus point. So you always kind of did mm -hmm. the composition thing. And then, you know, I got another camera and the same thing, the 5D uh, Mark II. You know, the center area was the best for focus because it had the cross types in it, but uh, the rest of the right. outside ones were kind of iffy. So I did that, and then I got the 6D and the 5D. And with the 5D, I set a bigger square, but it's still the center square. <laughs> I do the same yeah. thing. Occasionally, if I'm shooting in burst mode, um, especially with, like, the GH4, I'll set it up so that it does focus tracking. Because if you're, you know, someone's jumping off of a diving board or they're running at you or something like that, you don't want mm -hmm. to use the same focus point over and over again. But it's still... I kind of st I still rely on the center. I don't know. It's just the wacky thing <laughs> that's, I do. No, no, and that's not a bad way to go because just like you mentioned, every camera has different uh cross types and other things like that with its sensors. And the way that you do it will work really good on every camera you pick up. So that's not a bad way of doing things because you always know that you'll have a successful uh acquisition when you no matter what camera you have in your hands where while other cameras may be faster at this or that, or because they're mirrorless, they have, you know, infinite, quote-unquote infinite focus points. <laughs> uh, uh, so y y there's other ways that you could use them, but if you do learn that way and you get used to doing it that way, it does make it so you could literally pick up anybody's camera and in almost any focus mode and get the picture that you're looking to get. Now, speaking of picking up cameras, I'm going to roll on down the line here. Uh, LensRental.com, they're really great about this. They get new cameras, they tear them down, they break them apart, and they show you what's inside. Uh, Dev and I were actually talking about this pre-show. They've got a teardown now of the 5DS. The highlights here, and you can go to LensRental.com, there's a link in the show notes for that, uh, is that they've actually broken out a lot of the interface boards. So in the past, if you had a 5D Mark III, for example, and you were in my shoes, which this has happened to me, actually, um, if you break the HDMI port on your 5D Mark III, <laughs> it is a 100% board replacement. That means they have to take the entire mother board out change it out and it's like a grand and some change which is you know almost the you might as well buy a used yeah. one at that point because it's so expensive at the time they were retailing for 300 or three or three thousand two hundred so it wasn't the end of the world i ended up paying for that particular option as opposed to getting a new one but with the new 5ds they've broken out the hdmi ports 
the compact flash port, so the dreaded broken pin isn't an issue. They've got uh, <laughs> the headphone as well as the uh, mic jack broken out as well. And these are all on daughter boards so that you can just replace that section without having to replace the main motherboard. Uh, on the other side here, and uh, I'll let Devin comment in a minute, their weather sealing on the 5DS is not nearly as good as you see on the 7D Mark II or the 5D Mark III. Now, Canon did kind of advertise this as because it's high resolution, it's a studio camera. So that could be the reason, but it is a little bit disappointing that their sort of flagship high megapixel camera doesn't it, it have as good... It is the 5D name. Yeah, that's exactly. It's the 5D exactly. name, and it's disappointing to hear that uh, it may not be uh, necessarily as uh, weathered or rugged as uh, its older brother. No, and does this mean, though, for sure that if you're doing or uh, warranty or not warranty, but you're doing replacements, whatever through Canon, that it's actually going to be cheaper. Cause I know it means it's cheaper for them. It'll take them less time and less, uh, you know, cost of parts in order to repair things. So do you actually see this costing less for consumers turning in their cameras? Or do you just see this as a huge benefit for those who are willing to crack open their own camera? And uh, if they, especially if they have no warranty on it, and try to fix it themselves. Um, if you Canon actually has a really good program, uh, it's their uh, digital professional program. Uh, it's about a hundred bucks a year, and it's well worth investing in if you have a lot of camera kit. Uh, it's, well, Canon camera kit anyway. And you basically put the serial numbers for the equipment on there, and all of the cameras and stuff. And their their service center is really good. They're straight up front. If something is wrong with the main board and they have to replace it, they just say, "Hey, look, you're going to have to replace the board." If the cost gets so high to where uh, it's not worth it, they'll actually tell you, "Like this camera is not worth repairing," and they'll just send it back to you. And the program includes uh, fast shipping, a rental body free of charge while your device is out and everything else. And I don't know about the experience outside of that program because I pay for that (laughs) program. But inside of that program, when I've had camera repairs done, they were really good about it. They broke down the cost. They told me like, oh, if only it was this, it would have been this price. But now you have this other problem. It's going to be more expensive. (laughs) I don't think they look at it as a way to really dig into your pocket as much as they're just like they're not this profiteering is, is what you're saying Yeah, exactly they want people to be happy and be satisfied with the it service sounds, it almost sounds like uh like a car dealership with the way you say they give you a free rental and everything else yeah, um, it is I, a I, bit. I never have any experience with that i've never actually signed up most of the gear i've bought has been used but uh that that definitely sounds like uh, something to keep in mind if you go with Canon. Do you know, does Nikon have kind of a program like that? I imagine they've got something. I don't know. Actually, you know, I've never owned enough Nikon gear to make it worthwhile to even investigate any of that stuff. <laughs> I assume they do, uh, but the Canon, it's like the Certified Digital Professional, I think is what it's called. And mm-hmm. when you sign up, it's it's like $99 a year. It allows you to put up to, I think, six lenses and two camera bodies on the priority list. And everything mm-hmm. that's on that list, if you have any damage to any of those items, when you send it in, if it can't be uh, fixed and repaired immediately, they'll send it back to you. They also give you, I think it's a 60% or a 50% discount on repair labor. So you save a little bit of money there. Um, if you break your gear a lot or you take it out into like <laughs> extreme situations, it, it's well worth paying for. And they have different tiers too. So if you want to cover more equipment, you you can definitely add that to the line. And they only cover... Uh, professional level stuff so don't expect to get your t2i on there or your you know t6i or whatever but the 6d the 5d mark Mm three even the 5d mark 
uh, well, I think they stopped support for the 5D Mark II, but the, uh, you know, your higher-end tier, yeah. and then well, all the of ones the lenses. Yeah, worth a lot. Yeah, exactly, because so, if you break a $300 lens, you're not going to spend $250 to put a new motor in it and get it all rebuilt right. or anything. You're just going to be like, ah, chuck it. You know, but if you have a $1,200 or a $1,800, you know, 85-millimeter F1.2 that you need to repair, then right. it makes sense to send it in. So right. keep that in mind. The other thing, if you are ambitious, you look at these teardowns. If you go onto eBay, really old lenses like the uh, Canon 17 to 35-millimeter F2.8, which was out in the 90s and has been replaced by two generations now, uh, you can find those that have been dissected, you know, for whatever reason, maybe the element died or whatever, and people still sell the motors and the control components and the wiring harnesses on eBay for, you know, 50 or 100 bucks. So if you have one of those old lenses and it's kind of acting shifty and you think you can repair it yourself, go search on lensrentals.com for one of their teardowns or swing over to any place. I mean, there's tons of people that have torn these apart and done rebuilds. You find videos on YouTube and you can change out that internal component stuff as long as the glass isn't still, still in good shape. And if you break it, you wasted 50 bucks and it didn't work anyway. If you don't right. break it, now your lens is back to being worth like five or $600. Congratulations, you win. <laughs> no, it's definitely something to keep in mind for people who are handy because there's quite a bit of uh, cameras and other things that I've developed into. Uh, because you know what? Like you said, especially with um, if you look at the pictures of the 5DS, as you can see, a lot of stuff has actual connectors that you can unplug and plug back in, which is even like you need to get a soldering iron out and try to like sit here like some kind of robotic surgeon and and, and sit here and like try to solder something that's five microns big. So <laughs> he's he's showing right now um, uh, some of the teardown stuff. So it's one of those that you see somebody else has done it and it's not exactly uh, a terrible experience. Obviously you probably need special screwdrivers cause that's always a thing with these little electronics. Yeah. You know, I don't get sponsored by iFixit, So don't think that I do, but, uh, they have a really great uh, toolkit that's available. I think it's like 40 bucks or 30 bucks, And it has all the wacky screwdrivers, the star type and the hex head and all that stuff. So, and the triangle. Yep, exactly. If you <laughs> want to take apart McDonald's toys, they've got that as well. Um, <laughs> I also have a cheap kit laying around here somewhere that's like 22 bucks that you can buy on Amazon. They're not as high quality, but it's really affordable. The whole kit is you know maybe this big, and it's got 40 or 50 different little tiny screwdrivers in there. If you're tearing apart laptops on a regular basis or, you know, working with m.2 slots on you know really thin ultrabooks uh that sort of thing is really handy to have and doing camera teardowns of course so keep that in mind moving on down the line here i've got one more big story and then i kind of our discussion topic um the big story here is actually lens pro to go another rental company has been robbed looks like thieves uh, broke through the outside wall through the drywall and stole about $500,000 worth of equipment, including lenses, Nikon and Canon cameras, and so on. Uh, looks like uh, LensRental.com will be stepping up to the plate to help them out to fulfill orders while their insurance covers the details. But I kind of wanted to ask you, Devin, what do you do for insurance? <laughs> Actually, right now, um, I don't have insurance. Oh, uh, no. It's one of those, oh, no. It's one of those things that's on my list. Um, it's still one of those where most of my gear is that I take out with me at one time. I mean, I have quite a bit of gear, but to actually take out on a shoot is kind of under uh, two grand usually because it's a lot of run and gun stuff. It's a lot of smaller stuff. Like maybe sometimes I take out three grand with me. Uh, I'm not 
necessarily like you were. I'm always pulling out L series lenses and stuff like <laughs> whoa. that. So, whoa. so, whoa, whoa. So insurance is, uh, it's, it's a priority that I'm looking at and I've been shopping around. I haven't decided yet on what's right for me. Um, cause I know there's several different ways to go about it. It's one of those things you want to research and make sure that, uh, you get a good deal and you make sure that you read all the policies carefully so that everything's covered. Um, cause as well, um, if you're doing a, f- a video business, you also need to worry about liability if your equipment hurts somebody else and stuff like that. So there's a lot of that, that rolls in together and it's, it can kind of seem like a complicated, uh, monster of a thing to take care of, but it's super important because one of those things can really be tragic to, you know, your business or your gear if it gets stolen and stuff well, like and there that. There's that horrible story. What, uh, last year, the year before where they were shooting on train tracks, and they hadn't yeah. cleared it with the uh, train operators, and a train had come by, and somebody I think mm-hmm. actually died uh, trying to yeah. escape the train because there was they were on a bridge, and she made the wrong choice and ran the wrong direction. Or you know, I'm mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, guys, I'm not trying to um, make this sound less than it is. She died, and it was very serious. It's just I don't know yeah. the all the details that go along it with great. it. But yeah, so you got to be really careful on your shoots, especially. Man, I've I've had some weird stuff happen, especially shooting horror films, uh, where you know <laughs> we have the proper protection and everything else, and the actor or actress was like, oh, I didn't want to wear that; it was uncomfortable. So you're doing a noose scene, and you find out that they're wearing a real noose, and you catch it before you start shooting. But man, if they hadn't yeah. put the freaking chest plate and adapter and the the harness on, like it could have hung them. You know that would have been horrible. Right, yeah, and you know, so for that sort of thing, um, there's a couple things to consider. There are a lot of companies out there that sell full production insurance uh, for the beginning to end of a production. You can buy insurance for as little as 500 bucks to $1,000, depending on the number of actors, actresses, and so on, and the budget of the equipment. This is not for huge uh, feature-length films uh, with lots of budget. This is for like low-budget indie films. And you can check out a few companies, call your local insurance agent. A lot of times they'll have uh, providers that you wouldn't normally think of. The other thing I do, and this is just for my own safety and my own uh, uh, financial stability, is I carry mm-hmm. an umbrella policy, and this is getting kind of boring, but it's a million dollars. And you know how much a million dollar umbrella policy costs? It's like three fifty a year. It's not very much. And you know my uh, my coverage starts or my deductible is like five thousand dollars. So if something crazy happens. And, you know, I somehow blow up an entire set and we all go to flames, you know, or I destroy someone's building or something like that. At least I have that as kind of the protector. And that covers you for all your insurance. The other thing I do is I have a small business insurance for all my equipment. And, again, you have to determine what your threshold is for pain when you lose something, break something, or whatever. So your deductible will determine your rates. But if you if you can raise that up to something like, I don't know, $1,000 or $2,000, that at least covers a massive theft or a fire or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, of course, you're still going to lose that initial investment, you know, of two thousand or three thousand dollars, whatever you set the threshold to. But at least that covers the vast majority of your gear. And if you're in my boat, where I've got, you know, all the Canon L series lens, I've, you know, mountains I, of money. Yeah, no, no, not <laughs> money. I'm not rich by any means, but but he had lots of gear. Yeah, I pack a. I I was just out on a, a GH4 shoot this morning, and I looked at my kit, and I was like, oh crap, 
I'm holding like $5,000 right here, you know, not counting the <laughs> camera body. And it's like, wait a minute. And, and when you start getting to that point, you really need to think about some way to protect yourself. If you only have $1,000 worth of equipment, it, sure, it doesn't really make sense to have insurance. Or if you're only going out on small shoots where you're taking like two cameras and a couple of lenses, that's fine. But if you get bigger than that and you start getting like C100s on set or Canon FS700s, you probably want to think about that. I know it's kind of money that you feel like you're throwing away, but if you ever get robbed or, you know, someone it's, steals it's not your bag. Even, and it's not even, um, I mean, like protecting your gear is important and it is something you should consider. But at the same time, if you're doing videography and work like that, um, liability is huge. Uh, there are some people out there who are jerks who sue over anything. And uh, even if your light stand has got, you know, a little one pound LED light and it falls on somebody, people will go to court over something that silly. And so it's, it is important not just to protect your gear, but to protect yourself, uh, depending on what kind of video shooting you do. If you just go to the, you know, your backyard with your friends, that's totally different. Or you're making movies with your friends. Uh, but definitely if you're around corporations, you're doing videographies and weddings and stuff like that. Um, and even if it's their fault, you know, like they backed up, they bumped into something and they knocked something over on themselves. Uh, you'd be surprised, uh, you know, what ends up going to court and what people end up getting from other people for that. And that's one of the reasons like liability is it's not even just in case somebody gets injured. It's even too just in case somebody wants to make a case. Uh, to protect yourself, because that unfortunately happens too. Well, one example here, and we had barricades out so that people wouldn't park mm -hmm. there. We had a dolly shot that was going on, a, you know, a big motorized dolly running across, has like sharp corners and stuff. And someone moved the cones and parked their car next to the edge of the curb. And we coned it specifically because the dolly, even though the tracks were inside of the curb, the dolly itself mm -hmm. was outside of the curb. And the guy parks next to it, and the operator wasn't paying any attention because he's like, oh, well, we put cones out, and the cones were still sitting there. He comes by yeah. and just scrapes all the way across this Dodge uh, Challenger, just, like, digs into the paint all the way across. And, you know, luckily we had insurance, but uh, I still had to pay, I think, two grand out of pocket. And the cost of that mm -hmm. scrape across the car, I think it was in the $15,000 range for covering, yeah. like, paint damage. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that bad. You know, I mean, it does seem bad that you're scraping across the car, but at the same time, like, man, and that guy was super pissed, you know? And, and at yeah. the same time, it's like, hey, we put the precautions out here. And I think the insurance companies went to bat against each other because we did take the proper precautions. And so it didn't come out of my deductible. My rates didn't go up quite as high, but uh, it was still one of those things mm -hmm. where, like, how do you plan for that? There is no way to plan right. for it. You're trying to be safe. You're trying to do everything the right way. And then you still get jacked because someone's like, ah, these cones aren't for me. Move them. And, you know, bam, now your car's all scraped up. Moral of the story, protect yourself and uh, protect your gear. Now, speaking of gear, we've got a new lens on the horizon, and I kind of mentioned this with Mitch. I thought I'd bring it up with you as well. This is the Sigma 24 to 35 millimeter f2 lens. This guy is a full frame lens, unlike the 18 to 35 f1.8, and it sports f2 aperture range. What do you think about this, man? Is that in uh, uh, such an attractive jump from f2.8 for normal? Uh, you know, zoom range to F2 on the Sigma glass to make you really want to run out and buy this tomorrow? <laughs> well, you mean um, pre-order, right? Expected availability end of July. Yeah, but no pricing yet either, so I have no idea how much this is going to cost. I have no idea either. I Just judging from, you know, the price of the 1.8, um, 
I assume it's going to kind of be maybe around a thousand or so. Uh, not that I shop for a full frame all that often. Uh, so you'd know better than me, but it's, I, you know what? It's, it's one of those that uh, if this Canon EF and then your adapter with the autofocus and everything else, I mean, you know, seeing that autofocus adapter gives me a lot of ideas to start using more automatic lenses. And uh, as much as I've liked, loved you know, Canon series glass. It's always been one of those things that I cringe at the price. So I really like the Sigma stuff. I know the Sigma isn't necessarily as rough and tumble as uh, some Canon or Nikons that are way up in that range. Uh, But still performance for the price has always been fantastic. So it's one of those, I'm I'm excited to see some shots from it. And especially uh, if I can get electronic glass working better on um, my GH3 and whatnot, and um, possibly the Sony a7S. It's one of those that I would definitely consider, but... Yeah, you know, know. I don't know if Sigma is going to release this in an E-mount. We're probably going to see an A-mount full frame, and then you'll have to use something like that adapter that I keep sporting on my a7S. Um, For those of you not familiar with it, this is the... uh, What what the hell is it? It's like a LAEA4 adapter, which basically adds the reflex uh, transparent mirror to the a7S body and makes it the size of a DSLR, which is kind (laughs) of obnoxious. Yeah, but um, no, I want to defend Sigma here because they've been doing a really good job job with the art series lenses uh there were some hiccups at the beginning when they first released that uh 514 before they kind of created the art series and with canon cameras there were a lot of issues and reports of people having uh poor af performance with canon bodies but they were still getting good af performance out of nikon bodies as well as sony bodies so now with the art series they have that usb adapter the little like weird programmer yeah. that you can you can micro calibrate the lens to work with your camera body and they've done a lot of other things they've also gotten rid of that ugly ugly spackle like if you remember <laughs> about five or six years ago when you get a sigma lens it felt like feeling uh, that orange peel texture on drywall it was just like little lumps all over the place and kind of gross looking yeah I never understood what what yeah. that was. I'm I'm sure they're like, oh, it'll add a bit of grippiness, but it didn't feel like the same kind of grippiness that uh, that you would get on like some of the white body lenses from Canon and stuff. Yeah, their new designs are nice and sleek. They've got uh, smooth finish. They're kind of doing this sort of rounded, more modern design, and the focus throw on these lenses have been really nice. Everything feels very solid. I, I would put these in range with uh, Canon's offerings. Plus. The thing that you're getting with Sigma that is kind of unfortunate with Canon is if you look at the Canon F14 or 50mm F14, for example, that lens design has been around for like 15 years. Like all yeah. they do is, you know, update the internals a little bit and then re-release it. They haven't done anything with that particular lens forever. But with Sigma, they're using more modern coding technologies. They're using more mm-hmm. modern uh, lens design. And they're able to kind of like bring that forward. So even if it's not up to par with top-notch L glass that's coming out right now, it beats a lot of the mid-range stuff that's available from Canon and from Nikon and, and kind of brings it up to the top of the pack. Uh, the 85 millimeter f14 is a pretty sexy example you can pick those up for like 699 on a canon body yeah and and it's it's still um you know electric or mechanically controlled it's not fly by wire mm-hmm. like the uh, 85 one too so then it's kind of a nicer experience to use all around and 
I sold my 85-1-2 because of that reason. Like, the AF system was mm-hmm. junk. The control system was, like, mediocre at best. You had to have power on the lens. And, and then on top of that, if you've ever used the one, the 85-1-2, the back of the element goes right up to the edge of the metal. So every time you oh, put really? that on your camera, you're just like, please don't scratch, please don't scratch, please don't scratch, please don't scratch. Didn't scratch. Yes! You know, it's like, it's really scary and nerve wracking because it's just so flush with the the end. That's not something you want to deal with every time you put your lens on. Exactly. And I was willing to go from F2 to F14 in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And honestly, nowadays, I have the 8518, and that's kind of my go to if I need that, or the 135 F2, uh, which, by the way, is one of the cheapest L series lenses on the market. You can pick that up for like 700 bucks as opposed to the 1,000 or or 1,200 that you see at normal or you see other L glass. Uh, sitting at uh, the other is thing, that a recent price drop? No, it's been like that for a while. It's just no one really talks about no. it. The the one thirty five f two is kind of like it's a jewel, but it's a jewel that no one ever wants to wear around. Uh, it's <laughs> it's not quite long enough to be super telephoto, and so right. people aren't excited about that. And it's f two, and people see f one four and f one eight, and they're like, well, you mm-hmm. know, I don't know, but. At 135 and f2, man, you can just knock the background and stuff. Wedding photography, we were talking about that before. The lens yeah. I chose to hand out to the people that were helping out at my wedding a few years back was the 135 f2 and the 51 2. When it got really dark and mm-hmm. we're just wandering around, like after the reception, the 1 2 is perfect for that. At, at the reception, 135 is enough to get you far enough away from the group of people at the front to not be a nuisance. Mm-hmm. And still at f2, you get beautiful bokeh. You can really knock things out and you have enough reach to really like fill the frame with the bride or the groom or whatever and get that kind of like candid shot. So I don't know. I love that lens. I use it all the time. And now I'm really excited because getting it to F2 at 270 on the GH4 with this Kippen adapter means like, man, I can stand even further back and knock out everything, you know? (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. I haven't tested it yet. And this is on my list of things to do, but the 70 to 200 F28 uh, with IS. I want to see how the IS performs, first of all. And then going all the way up to 400 millimeters on the GH4 body. I know, right? Like for, um, you know, animal photography or or wildlife or whatever. No, I think that's a telescope. I think you're talking about a telescope. (laughs) About a telescope. It will be, or it'll be a little bit more reach than the Olympus monster I was showing off the other day, but uh, it's yeah. still a very sexy idea. It's, it'll be unwieldy though, so I'm not sure that it'll be something that's practical for everyday use. But I still want to test yeah. it out. Oh, um, <laughs> anyway, fun. Sigma lenses, good stuff. I really like their art series. They're 35 one four performance. Yeah, they can't be. Yeah, I think what's the 35 one four? That's um. I want to say seven or eight hundred dollars price tag, and yeah, th- and that puts it well underneath the now aging thirty-five millimeter f one four from Canon, and the thirty-five millimeter f one four from Canon is plastic. It's an L series yeah. lens, and the body is freaking plastic. It is yep. not metal. It is not hard. It is not hardened, rugged, or whatever. It's I don't even think it's got a water seal on it for God's sakes. So you know, in that regard, that's where Sigma really like sneaks in and kind of takes over is because they have modern technology in their lenses, and Canon has yet to refresh some of this stuff. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And right now on Amazon, pretty much whatever mount you want goes for 900. Oh, and that's nice. what's kind of cool, too, is that when you talk about Sigma, you're talking about multiple mounts and uh, electronic lenses that work with multiple mounts. So you get that same performance, whether I mean, heck, the 35 at 1.4 comes in a Pentax mount. Oh, really? Like, yeah, it comes in Sony, Pentax, Canon, and Nikon. So. I mean, I know Pentax makes cameras, but I could not name <laughs> a single model off the top of my head. It's just escaping I, me. You know, the only model I know of is like the Pentax uh, Q10 and Q7. Because um, those are fun little DSLR cameras. They're like, they're really small. And, you know, are those I'm the sure ones that market... come in like hot pink and like green and stuff like that because yeah, they're very yeah. popular in like Japan. Yeah, yeah, but they're they're full on DSLR with like a sensor, a shutter, and all that kind of stuff, and manual controls, um, and the Pentax menu system I always thought was really good. Um, but it, it's one of those little lenses that's just like fun to play with, and you could literally have the camera and like four primes all in your pockets. So it's just kind of fun for that fact. You know, you wouldn't use it for professional stuff, but it's fun. It's a fun camera to play around with, and that's the only Pentax I know of. Man, I haven't <laughs> shot on a, like a full size. I haven't <laughs> shot on a Pentax since the K one thousand, which was like an old stills film camera probably back in the what 80s and 90s and i i uh, quickly abandoned that for a canon um shoot it was like a dean i don't even remember the the last uh autofocus film camera canon had in their in their series before they switched from the old lens mount to the ef mount which um yeah, I don't mm-hmm. this is F, FD mount to yeah, it was the last big FD release uh which FD before was, the ES. Yeah. Now anyway, um let's not reminisce. <laughs> uh moving on down the line here, I've got one last thing I kind of wanted to talk about and this is a Kickstarter fail. Uh there's a Washington Post article linked here in the show notes that you guys should probably check out and it looks like a board game creator uh, was successfully sued for not coming through with his fulfillment on Kickstarter. Uh, the original project was backed for something in the range of $120,000. Uh, he was forced for uh, forced to pay uh, recompense to the Kickstarter backers of $111,000, which he doesn't have to pay because he doesn't have the funds. Uh, in the lawsuit, they accuse him basically of spending the money on personal gain as opposed to uh, using the funds for... Uh, the Kickstarter project itself. So no idea if that's actually true or not. I don't know the whole backstory on this, but this is a red flag for me. I mean, this was prior to Kickstarter changing the rules, saying that they must fulfill whatever, you know, backed item. Now they kind of have a loosey-goosey approach to Kickstarter projects in general, where, like, Kickstarter doesn't say you'll definitely get it. They just say they will make every effort to get it. You've invested in a number of Kickstarters. Have you been burned? Yes, I have. (laughs) um no this is this is a really interesting case because i mean for one thing i guess it um will help to make people think twice make sure that they've got all their ducks in a row before they ask for money um in this case for this uh it's a it's like a board game right that's what yeah so this is a um kind of a live action board game one of those ones where you have like custom-made characters and Mm -hmm. this kind of follows the path of H.G. Wells-style Cthulhu stuff uh, attacking Atlantic City. Um, They had a number of (laughs) artists on board that were well-known for uh, sort of, you know, Cards Against Humanity and Zombie Side and Exploding Kittens. And they initially asked for uh, 35 grand. Um, You know, most pledges were going to be 50 bucks to get a copy of the game. And it's one of those where I think a lot of people go in with ideas and they don't go in with a business plan, which is unfortunate. That's how a lot of these Kickstarters fail, I feel, is because... They don't think about, you know, all the money it actually takes. Um, 
for example, if you're making a smartwatch like your Pebble, uh, you need to keep in mind it's like not just you have to, uh, you know, you may have come up with a design. You may have an engineer and you go, this is exactly how we're going to make it. Then you go into production, realize, oh, wait, we can't do that. We have to change the plan. That's going to cost money. And then new molds and then new testing and then prototyping and then quality of service. And then so many units you produce are just going to be bad out of the shop. And then so many units you produce are going to go bad after they get in customers' hands. So you got to account for all this loss of money and then go back and go, okay, this is how much it should cost for this product. If you don't plan for all that and you go, well, if I hook this up and I plug an Arduino into here, I pretty much have my product. So I guess I'll just charge, you know, like 50 bucks a product or whatever it is. Um, and this is more electronic stuff. I don't know what it takes to make a board game. But uh, when you're developing an actual product, it's not even so much a movie, but you're developing an actual product uh, to take to a customer. There's so much I'd be concerned about. You also have to think about customer service, you know, especially if you get you overnight success like Pebble and you have, you know, thousands of customers, you need a team to manage, you know, requests and response to all those thousand customers. And that all costs money. It's people you need to hire and there's HR and there's overhead. And it's, it's a big monster that people don't realize. They just think, oh, it costs this much to make a product. That's how much we should sell it for. So I feel like that's why a lot of them fail. And I think Pebble even went through a, a few of that. And um, they learned through the growing pains and everything else. And now they're really successful. They were able to uh, still stay capitalized. But I do remember like when Pebble came out, there was quite a few failed products and people responding, being very upset and Pebble not responding to them right away. And then after I think a year or so, Pebble finally got everything they needed, started getting, you know, customer support and everything else to start putting stuff out there. But what does this mean for Kickstarter and all of this? I like I said, I'm hoping it means that people will take it more seriously, that like you need a business plan. This isn't just like I've got a really cool idea for a board game. Let's do it, guys. Because you're going up against some big giants. Like the board game industry in general has got a couple of really big uh, distributors and publishers, and that's it. Like it's really it's, – it's like the car industry and everything else. There's a few big guys that you're up against, and if you try to do stuff on your own, it can be really tough. So, Yeah, I'm, you know – when you mention molds, been, that's just like one big rat hole. Uh, I've had stuff made in the yeah. past. And if, for those of you not familiar with it, injection molding is a very complicated process. You have to create ports and everything else, and you inject plastic into a thing. And that's how you make like a lot of cases for stuff, a lot of shapes, a lot of parts. But all it takes is one screw-up when they're creating the metal plate for that, and you're back to the drawing board. And each one of those... Nightmare is two to $4,000 or more, depending on the size of the mold, the engineering it takes, and how many pieces to make it complex. It, it all goes together in order to design that. So you screw up once, that's great. Now you're going to have to start from scratch again. Plus there's the vent port changes based on you know the amount mm -hmm. of plastic filled in each area and so on. Those are just the little nuances that get into making something like that that can really... For one figure. Yeah. And for that's like just, one package or one figure. Yeah, that's just <laughs> one part. That's not including like the art for the board, all the cards, everything else. So, man, really, if you're going to take something to Kickstarter, it's fine if it's like, okay, I'm going to paint with my dong and, you know, make like art. And, you know, <laughs> I'm going to sell like 20 of these custom, like right. whatever. That's fine. But if you're going to do a product itself, you know, make sure that you're almost like, you know, you're 99% of the way there. Maybe you have a prototype in your hand. I know the guys that did the uh, flyer, and they're really great people. Um, I've got uh, the Aviator flyer myself. It's a small, like, six-foot crane. They basically had that three-quarters of the way done, and the only thing left was to have the parts mass-produced and shipped to the United States, and they still fell behind because guess what? When they went to manufacture everything, it fell into Chinese New Year. And so the stuff yeah. that was being made ended up being Stop. left outside and set on a pallet for a month 
while everybody celebrated. And by the time they got back, the product was destroyed. Like it had been rained on, you know, it sat out and mice had mm-hmm. moved into it and everything else. And so they had to like push that back another month to have that much fulfillment created again for them. And I mean, they got reimbursed for it, I, I believe, but it was still kind of a mess. Yeah. Uh-oh. And, and that, that kind of stuff can still take a really long time. Um, so it's one of those that I just clearly looking for how much they're asking to create a board game and everything else and the complexity of this board game makes me think they didn't fully uh, put everything together because uh, I think Kickstarter 2 has a rule and it ha- has had a rule for a while that if you're making a product, you need a prototype. I mean, prototyping a board game is cheap because technically you could prototype with some pieces of paper, you know, yeah. but um, <laughs> I just but drew a square. Look of, at this. Uh, That's home run. Yeah, in case of like things like um, the I bought for the three axis, the time lapse control motor slider yeah. system, all of those. If you notice on Kickstarter, Indiegogo is a different game, but on Kickstarter, they're required to have somewhat of a working prototype, and that's what they're show. They're not allowed to show like virtual images of like this is what it'll look like. Same thing with like uh, the Logger's Lunchbox when they first released. They obviously the product they ended up making looks way different. And I think they always plan on kind of having it look that way. But Kickstarter has a rule. You can't show concept art. You have to show an actual prototype um, to try to keep the amount of bad Kickstarters down. Because Kickstarter is interested in people successfully doing Kickstarters. Because uh, the they last get thing, money. Yeah. And they, want, they have a brand now. And they need to keep their brand going. So it's in their interest to make sure things like this lawsuit uh, don't happen. And so this, this could just be a big like message out there to people being like, hey – Make sure all your stuff is in a row. Obviously, if you can't fulfill, you can't fulfill. Um, and that's always going to be complicated. And there's things that can come up. Because unfortunately, you can run a Kickstarter for potato salad and promise <laughs> that you'll give everyone potato salad. At least that one's easy and, to product demo. <laughs> that one is easy to product demo. So it's, it's one of those things where I think it's good for Kickstarter. It's a step in the right direction because uh, Kickstarter... Indiegogo is still kind of the Wild West, but Kickstarter has been working harder and harder, nailing down, being like, we're going to review everything that comes in. We aren't going to let potato salad and silly stuff get into this uh, because they want their brand to grow and they want it to be successful. And I think it's a really good idea, but it's still, it's always a risk. You're backing somebody. You're not buying a product, um, and people need to remember that. Now, we've got three questions up on the uh, question and answer section here. I don't really know how these end up on here. So if someone could tell me, like, there's some secret way, uh, we get a comment tracker and it posted there. So I'm going to select this one here. The question is, uh, does the Sigma have vibration control? The answer is no. The 24 to 35 millimeter does not have uh, any kind of vibration control. So if you're looking for that, you might want to look elsewhere. Um, there is rumors that Canon is releasing a 16 to 35 millimeter F2.8 in the future to replace the Mark II that will have IS built in. Uh, no idea if that's actually coming or not for real. There's also some patents that have been issued by Canon for a 24 to 70 millimeter with IS, but also not yet in the works. So those are two things to think about when you are looking mm-hmm. for this lens. Uh, Devin, yeah. do you think IS in that focal range, 24 to 35, is going to make or break it? Uh, you know, not for me. Um, <laughs> I don't think even, so either. Even in video mode. I, I suppose it's a bit more of an animal. Uh, if you're, you know, GH4, you're doubling that number because of your crop sensor. But... Uh, for the most part, that's pretty wide, especially for photography work. Um, I wouldn't have any problems taking photos and keeping the camera still enough for that kind of work. But 
uh, and even too image stabilization. I'm about shoulder rigs or glide cams or whatever. I'm about stabilizing the camera and not relying on stabilizers built into the lens because while they are nice and they are fast and easy to use, for me personally, I don't think they have the best look. So each to their own. Yeah, it does, especially um, shooting with the uh, Panasonic glass. The uh uh, what is it? Uh, something to one hundred. Man, my. I, mm-hmm. Why can I not think of that right now? It's fifty-five. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's a seventy to two hundred equivalent, but it, that would be thirty-five to one hundred millimeter f two eight. Thank you, DJ, yeah. for doing the math in your head. Um, that <laughs> one has IS built in, and I find that it gives the image a little bit of a blur. Um, also, if you're shooting on bigger lenses, like I have the uh, uh, Tamron twenty-four to seventy right here, the IS system on here works okay, but. If it's on a tripod and you forget to turn it off, you're going to get this weird humming noise. You're also going to get a little bit of a humming noise regardless with your audio attached directly to the camera. So if you have a microphone attached, that can be an issue as well. At wider focal lengths, I don't find IS to be critical. Um, if you're shooting stills, it will help a lot because, you know, that adds an extra yeah. stop to stuff. But for video, I'm kind of in your boat. I either have a rig, I don't mind a little bit of handheld, you know, wackiness, or... Uh, you know, I uh, use a stabilization system of some kind, whether it be a monopod or now the uh, Cam TV stabilizer that I've been messing around with. Right. You know? So you have other options. Do you need and IS in your lenses? I don't know. I mean, each IS system is different, but I remember when I had, um, say, the PD-150 or um, the, was it the uh, HMC-100? No, that's the HD model, right? What was that Panasonic called that everyone had? Uh, the, uh, uh, wait, what? The 100B? I totally got distracted by the <laughs> question on the side. There's somebody posted, like, yeah. say I love Al Jazeera. No, I know. No. 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 Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Panasonic. Um, yeah, yeah. What, uh, what was the, um, the Panasonic camera, the 100B? It was like it wasn't HMC because I think that's the HD version. Oh, are you talking uh, about anyways, the full shoulder rig? The, the, like, the version? DVX. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, DVX 100B. Yeah, 100B. So, I remember on that camera when you turn on the stabilizer, if you tried panning, it would like try to hold on to the shot yeah. and then let go and start the pan. And autofocus system or uh, image stabilization systems haven't necessarily gotten much better than that. Like they have in a few ways and they have in other ways. And it depends what system you're using. It depends on the lens, the way it's implemented. Um, but that's always a thing. And for me, videography um, is sometimes about keeping the camera still and sometimes about moving the camera. So even if I you know, it's just because I'm doing a pan or I'm doing a movement or I'm shifting uh, from place to place image stabilization. I don't turn it on that often because it's going to interrupt whatever I'm trying to do. Now so there's times when it works. If you're just, you know, standing still and you're doing a documentary shot or something yeah. like that, and you're just shooting somebody at a convention floor. Sure. Turn on image stabilization. It'll look great. Uh, but if you're doing B roll and you're doing pans and you're doing zooms and stuff like that, image stabilization just doesn't work for me. Yeah, now there is one box, and I've rented it a few times doing uh, shots out of uh, moving vehicles and uh, flying vehicles, and it's this gyroscope that's like, it's probably like eight pounds. It's a really beefy deal, and it literally does have a full-fledged spinning metal disc in the middle of it, and it has to be (laughs) powered by like an XLR lock system, you know, with a lot of juice. And when you have that, it's the it's kind of the thing you're describing. It really fights you because the gyroscope wants to like kind of stay stable wherever yeah. it's at. So as you move, you're almost like you know pushing mm-hmm. really hard one direction and pushing the other. But that one is a really cool effect. And as long as you're not using any audio, which you know usually if you're riding around in a vehicle or in a, a right. helicopter or something, you know you you have a lot of noise, so it doesn't really matter. You're not gonna you're gonna use that for like some coverage shot or whatever. When you're doing that, that thing is freaking sweet but i think they're like 
three or four grand or more. I've yeah. never even been able to afford to own one. I've just rented one a few times. So that's cool. And, you know, <laughs> IS in the um, 24 to 70, it's not bad. I don't mind it. I yeah. turn it on every once in a while, but for the most part, I leave it off. I don't really find myself needing IS that much. Maybe it's because my hands are stable and I've gotten used to kind of doing this sort of thing, mm-hmm. but uh, it doesn't really help me as much as I thought it would. When I, when yeah. we started seeing IS come out in the 24 to 70 on the Tamron and, and some of these other lenses, I thought, oh man, you know, I'm going to have image stabilization. It's going to be built into my lens. It'll be great. Well, in reality... It's not as high performing as you think, and sometimes it times out after a while. Sometimes it adds audio noise. Uh, sometimes it only works when you're half pressing the focus button. You know, it doesn't yeah. actually stay on the whole time. So, it's not as applicable as I thought it would be to regular everyday shooting. Well, and especially compared to just stabilizing the whole camera system. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is generally always going to look better because you're always going to have those micro vibrations when you're doing handheld with such a small device in front of you like DSLR shooting or even smaller uh, video cameras. And so stabilizing the entire platform to me usually makes a lot more sense because it's going to be a cleaner image. Uh, not that you can always tell, but a lot of the times I can tell if they just use image stabilization or if they're actually using a camera platform that was stabilized because they are different looks. But maybe you want that look. It's it's about what motion and everything you want, too. Uh, fun fact, too, uh, if you're into science, I learned that giant, you know, spinning uh, gyroscopes like you were talking about is how they orient satellites in space. Oh, really? Uh, they use that as a reference? Huh. They, they like they spin it and then they move the satellite like around it. So it'll try to stay still because it's spinning in a certain direction and then they'll uh, push it in order to push itself around. So well, very little friction in space. So I suppose once you spin the disc up, it probably rotates for a, quite a long time. <laughs> so but that's a cool fact. There's there's tons of videos on YouTube if you're interested in that kind of stuff. I am. So it's just when you brought that up, I thought about, you know, other applications for gyroscopes and stuff. But. Okay, one last question before we go, because uh, some of this is just you guys typing stuff in. I don't know. What. <laughs> um, the last question here is about uh, the authorities using our data. And I don't really want to dive into them capturing our data on the Internet. But one thing I do want to talk about as far as video and photography goes is the metadata that's included with your pictures. Uh, If you have a camera phone, for example, or you shoot film with a phone on occasion, a lot of times that will actually track the name of the device. It'll also tag your photos with the location information if you've hit yes on whatever screen. And some of the newer cameras, like the Panasonic GH4, will actually link up to your phone and get geotag information. That's great when you're trying to go through and take photos for like environmental impact sites or something like that, and you really do need to know where things were located. Um, I just shot a, a race this morning, and it would have been nice, you know, to have geotags for the each of the spots and like do some kind of picture montage for that. But if you put that on the internet, the authorities can pick that up, gather the information, and let's say you, Devin, were out there taking pictures and you caught a crime in progress and you posted the pictures to Facebook or, you know, wherever. Now they can tell that you were there during the event. They know who you are and they can link it back to you. Does that mm-hmm. make you scared? I mean, do you wipe your metadata from your photos and your video before you post them or what do you do? Uh, yeah. And generally, it's not one of those things where I'm necessarily scared of reproductions. I For part of it, I just think it's um, it, it's weird. Just as weird as it sounds like cleanliness, like professionalism, um, it, especially any deliverables I'm giving to a client, I make sure that there's no metadata on them uh, because, you know, um, the serial number usually from the camera and such things are sometimes included in metadata. 
uh, besides. But there is a lot of cool stuff in metadata. There's, you know, what focus length you were at, if you've got, a, you know, electronic lens and um, what your iris was at. And you can kind of look back and look at the settings you had, um, as well as, too, on Flickr, since it supports metadata. You can look at other people and see what settings they had. Uh, geotagging is always one of those things that's not important. Um, and I haven't seen geotagging necessarily used against uh, somebody else in a convincing case, at least one where that was the only sole evidence. Usually there was a lot of surrounding evidence. Uh, but you make a fair point, uh, especially with a lot of um, uh, – Well, you know, like if you took a picture of a crime being committed, right. for example, and you left, now you could be charged with uh, leaving the scene of a crime. And yes. you have all the data captured, you know, images or whatever. I, I know you're not required to turn your camera over, but the authorities could ask you to turn over digital copies of your images in the future or right. something like that. For me, though, um, usually I find in most situations. Try to stay out of riots. You, the fact that you took a picture there uh, and you could tell because you can see what's in the picture. So if you can tell that, oh, this person was here because they, their picture shows them here and there's a file creation date on the file because there always is. And it's usually accurate because people put in accurate times into their cameras and stuff like that. Then people can pinpoint exactly where you're standing at a certain period of time, whether or not they have geographical data. That's not always the case. If you shoot an up close, you know, picture of a dent on your car, you know, no one's going to know where you were at when you took that picture. But I'm just saying generally, especially if you're capturing a scene, um, it's like there's usually a file creation date, um, not just a file modified date that you have to worry about. And there's all that kind of stuff. So. It's one of those where I just haven't seen it being convincing, being like, oh, wipe all your metadata. Otherwise, you could get in trouble for it. You make a good case. It's something to be uh, wary of. But Well, and there know. are uh, reasons <laughs> to actually include that sort of thing, too. Um, when I mentioned the bio issue, uh, I did work with a group that was trying to hand out cameras to everybody in order to take pictures and then track the location of things that they found so they could add corrective me measures. It was for, like, a no. water diversion they were having issues yeah. with like erosion and stuff like that. And so they wanted to create a method for uh, photographing and tracking this. And basically I helped them uh, use uh, Google Maps and then geotagging of the photos in order to create like a little custom deal where they would show them along their property line and their ownership line where like, oh, we have erosion problems here and somebody spotted them over here. And then that way you could send everybody out with like... Uh, a cheapo cell phone camera. They could take the pictures right. and then gather everything back together, uh, insert the pictures into this map, and then bam, you have everything. So there are reasons to do it, but I'm kind of with you. Like, I remove everything before I send anything mm -hmm. out because, you know, if I do have geolocation on there, I don't want someone, you know, hey, I just found <laughs> out where you live. Now I'm going to come get you or something like that. Or, you know, or <laughs> like, oh, I know you're well, shooting over here, so I'm going to come over there and, like, steal all your camera gear or something. It's one of those two where you have a lot of gear, and if somebody does get access to your photos and sees you taking photos um, uh, in, you know, your location or your home, uh, it just becomes a target for theft. Yeah, you know, the, the whole like, oh, somebody's going to come and kill me. Uh, that just doesn't happen that often. I'm not saying it never happens. It's just one of those things that's not a likely thing that I'm going to worry about every day. Uh, but definitely if you live towards the city, especially if you live in an apartment, um, theft is huge, you know, during the day when you're out working or go or somewhere else, theft is huge. And so if somebody can get that data and go, this guy's got a ton of gear, which let's face it, like there isn't a whole lot of prosecution on people stealing camera gear and film gear because it's so small and so easily to, uh, resell to other people that it's one of those where I'm concerned about that. 
that somebody finds out where I live and knows that I have a lot of expensive gear that they can hold in their hand. They could take a piece of my gear, shove it in their pocket, and that's $2,000 they just took, which a lot of people don't have thousands of dollars of cash around their apartment. But with gear, it's almost like you have that sitting around that somebody could take and then go and sell. If they're you know savvy, not every theft is aware of how much you know necessarily camera equipment costs. Sometimes they sit here and like break into a car to steal a you know $100 point and shoot. But... <laughs> You know, it's not not every theft is smart. So uh, but it's one of those things that I'm more concerned about theft, because uh, especially if you're in a shared living situation or you're in an apartment, because those are usually huge targets, uh, depending on their security. And definitely if you live uh, in densely populated areas, the risk is always a little bit higher. So I'm mostly concerned with that stuff. Not so much. Oh, someone's going to find me. And, (laughs) you know, Uh, but. So that's that's why I generally just strip all that data. The customer doesn't need to know any of that. The customer also, I don't want them to know what camera I shot it on. Sometimes if they look up the price of the camera, they're like, oh, really? He used this cheap of a camera? I don't think we should use them anymore. Because sometimes clients are silly like that. And they think that the amount of money you spend on your gear is how good your content is. Instead of just using their eyes and being like, that looks really good. I like that. So it's all things like that. It's just conversations I don't want to have if people find that stuff. So it's like, it's just easier to go ahead and clean it all out. So to each their own, though, because metadata is extremely useful, and especially for uh, photography's sake of ISO and f-stop. You can learn a lot from seeing other people's settings, seeing your own settings, trying to figure out what kind of look you want to get, as well as I know Flickr, I think you can sort by it. So you could say, hey, show me all the pictures from a D700, and you can kind of get an idea of what a D700 you know, can do. So there's a lot of fun in it and it's i see that's useful especially like you said geotagging along with like drone technology and aerial footage is extremely important for uh uh, recording disasters and recovery uh disaster recoveries and things like that and you know katrina and stuff like that can help a lot too so it's it's just one of those things that it's like anything else like the internet uh it's gonna be used for both good and bad and you just gotta be careful about how you use it so be careful. Don't let them track you. <laughs> don't let them track you. Find your tinfoil and put it over your head as fast as possible. Yep. On that note, don't get robbed, guys. Devin, where can people find you without <laughs> robbing you? <laughs> Impulsenetworks.tv. Um, and just a reminder, too, uh, we usually do uh, live shows every Monday for the one person who asked. Yeah. Um, for those of you wondering, usually, like, or Sunday. Or Sunday, Sundays, yeah. yes. Our live shows are usually... On Friday mornings with Mitch and Sunday afternoons, 3 p.m. Eastern time, or no, Western time. Western. Uh, Western. Thank you. I know where I live. Um, Yeah, so (laughs) keep that in mind if you're into watching this live. If not, they're pre-recorded as well, so they go up on YouTube. Um, If you guys want to shoot questions at me, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, The handle is DSLR Film Noob. Uh, You can find me there pretty easily and ask questions, and we can bring them into the show. Or you can shoot me an email at dslrfilmnoob at gmail.com. Those are both good ways to uh, bring in questions. Or swing over to the Reddit. It's the slash DSLR. So you can swing over there, too, and post something and get responses from myself and maybe even Devin. Uh, Devin's also on Twitter, (laughs) and you can email him or ask him questions directly. I'm inviting that to you. So go hit him up on Twitter. (laughs) Devin, where can they find you on Twitter? MaverMC, M A V E R M C. So check that out. And guys, thanks for watching as always. You can find this on iTunes, on YouTube, on SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are distributed. On that note, time for the ending show. And we'll see you next time on another DSLR Film Noob podcast.